said that no real progress had been made forward on Luther's biography and his life and thought. So even though it's five weeks ago at this point, we're going to pick right up where we left off. Uh, I'm not sure what else to do. You may recall we'd, we'd made it all the way through uh, 1517, October 31st, in preparation for the concert, uh, conference. So we, we made it at least to, uh, and even discussed, Luther's great 95 theses. Uh, but I, me- I mentioned at the end of that Sunday school, despite that, the importance of that document, which is un, un, you know, undeniable, uh, it was actually a, a sermon that Luther preached against indulgences early in 1518 that was published and republished and circulated in a pamphlet, sort of broadsheet form, and, and f- flooded uh, European monastic houses. And, and so that's really what put Luther on the map, uh, was that sermon against indulgences. And, and so in 1518, we're going to look today a little bit at the Heidelberg Disputation uh, in our favorite city, Heidelberg. Um, but at the time, there was just an Augustinian and a Dominican monastery there. And they got a hold of both Luther's 95 Theses and his uh, Sermon Against Indulgences. And so they invited this Luther uh, from Wittenberg to come and hold a disputation, basically like a church conference, uh, on indulgences and share share with them some of his insights from Scripture. Uh, at this point, indulgences uh, and the discussion around them was a full-blown controversy. It, it was a debate. Uh, and so theologians from various circles and quarters in Europe were, were weighing in. So Luther came to Heidelberg, to the Augustinian Monastery, and to everyone's great frustration, at least initially, he changed topics. <laughs> which is not really what you want of a conference uh, speaker, to assign them a topic, have them show up and say, you know, today I feel like uh, talking about something else entirely. But that's what he did. Uh, he showed up in Heidelberg and, and began to develop uh, not a defense of his critique of indulgences, but uh, what, what's called Luther's theology of the cross. He sort of backed out in view and, and introduced theological concepts in a more general level. And so it's, it's useful today to look at the Heidelberg Disputation in 1518 and think about kind of an introductory survey of Luther's theology uh, because it, it lacks that critique of, of indulgences. And in fact, there's some important people who were, who were listening, uh, <coughs> listening in, uh, especially Martin Bunzer. I'm going to circle back and talk about Martin Bunzer. Uh, in a few minutes. Martin Bootser was a young Dominican priest who'd been studying uh, Greek there in, Augsburg, or in Heidelberg and, and went to listen to this disputation and was won over to the Reformation and went on to be a great, uh, a great reformer in Strasbourg. So we'll, we'll circle back to him uh, in a second. Okay, so the Heidelberg Disputation, 1518, uh, is a kind of introduction to Luther's theology. Uh, Luther probably goes without saying, was a, was a brilliant theologian, uh, a brilliant mind. Uh, that's sort of the obvious point to make. However, he was not a, a systematizer. He was more of a, what you might call an, an ad hoc theologian. He would address himself to specific concerns or issues or debates as they arose. 
and, and deal with an issue. He was, he was an, an occasional theologian. When the occasion uh, of controversy or something arose, he would address himself to it. But he wasn't sort of a systematizer, laying out uh, in logical order uh, his whole theology from, from beginning to end. So there's a lot of polemical works that, uh, that we know from Luther. He actually, he actually thought of himself uh, in this way. He, he, he used the analogy of, of being something like a, uh, call it a, a, wood, uh, a, a woodsman, sort of wandering through the woods with his axe, clearing the forest. Uh, in fact, he actually said, I clear the forest, my assistant, uh, Philip Melanchthon stacks the wood, puts it in neat, orderly piles. He's just sort of the wild man uh, wandering through the forest, taking aim at uh, mostly at, at, at bodies, not so much at <laughs> trees, but uh, that's another story. Um, so he's this, he's this occasional theologian. Um, and, and sometimes he was very critical of scholastic theology and, and what he called linear reasoning. Uh, by linear reasoning, I mean... If, if A, then B, if B, then C. Some of you may be familiar who studied symbolic logic. Uh, it's torturous, I assure you. Therefore, or ergo, if A, therefore C. That kind of reasoning, this is the symbol for therefore, this linear reasoning from A to B to B to C and, and drawing a conclusion, uh, therefore kind of theology. He said whenever he hears ergo or therefore in theology, he's, he's a little skeptical uh, when it comes to the medieval theologians. And so he begins to offer a kind of critique of this way of doing, of doing theology uh, and proposes uh, not so much an alternative as much as a, a complementary way of doing theology. Given our sermon today on the golden chain, I, I should hasten to add here, Luther recognized that there was this kind of logic in Scripture, without doubt. Uh, Romans 8 that we heard about today, Romans 5, one of, his, one of Luther's favorite passages in the beginning of Romans 5, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Luther understood the importance of this. Uh, we don't want to misunderstand his critique of, of linear reasoning uh, to, to mean he neglected those passages in Scripture. But that's really not the way Luther's mind worked. Um, there's an interesting kind of story. Once he got the backing of Frederick the Wise, the prince uh, in Wittenberg, the, the, the prince elevated him to a status of some importance and allowed him to, to have a family crest, something like being knighted. Uh, and so as a family crest, he chose as, a, as his emblem a rose. And theologians love to point out, historians love to point out that rather than this linear logic, Luther's way of doing theology was, was more like concentric circles or if you can imagine a rose, I'm a terrible drawer, but sort of petals around certain centers. That was his, his way of thinking about theology. Um, more like concentric circles uh, around around Christ at the center. Um, and so he began to really think about this uh, and, and to develop uh, a theology of paradox. We might run out of room. I'll have to start erasing things. Uh, 
Now, a paradox is not something that is an outright contradiction, but it's a, a pairing of things that sometimes may seem to be opposites. A pairing of two terms in some, some kind of surprising or creative way. Uh, and in addition to the linear logic that, that you find in scripture, uh, Luther thought there's a paradoxical sort of logic that you find in scripture as well. Um, there's a, a kingdom logic of the kind that you see throughout Jesus' ministry. Uh, passages that come to mind, you, you can be thinking of these too if you have any ideas. Matthew 20, when Jesus says the, the first will be last and the last will be first in the kingdom of heaven. There's a kind of kingdom logic to that that's a little paradoxical. It's not what you'd expect. Uh, a pairing of first and last and upturning it. That's the kind of thing you find in the kingdom of heaven, uh, Luther said. Uh, what would be another example? Maybe Jesus in Matthew 16, uh, in, the, in the section about taking up your cross and following him, he says, whosoever uh, will save his life must lose it. And whoever, will lose his, whoever loses his life will find it. That, that's a kind of paradoxical uh, theological statement that, that Luther loved. There are, there are probably lots more we could think of. Um, Romans, uh, sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. The pairing of uh, sinful and sinless uh, and the overturning of that in the gospel. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21, if you, if you have your Bibles. Uh, he, God, made him, namely Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5:21. Now there are therefores in this passage, and Luther wouldn't, wouldn't deny that, but he loved this kind of surprising pairing of, of opposites. Um, therefore, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. In verse 21, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. That's, that's a paradox in Luther's mind. So that in him, we who are sinful might become the righteousness of God. That's the kind of theology that he uh, wanted to elaborate on from Scripture. And so, in the Heidelberg Disputation... They're expecting him to talk about indulgences. And he shows up and, and talks about two different ways of doing theology. Comparing a theology of glory to a theology of the cross. Get rid of my, my rose there. <laughs> he criticizes what he calls a theology of glory. Which is... Reasoning according to the world. Theology as worldly Christians might engage in. In his mind, he says this explicitly, it's also the way the theologians of Rome reasoned. Uh, so it's, it's Roman theology. Well, what are the hallmarks of a theology of, of glory? How does the world think about spiritual things? Uh, he says 
It's based on, a theology of glory is based on man's wisdom and man's good works. In fact, he thought that there was a a connection between man's wisdom and man's dependence on his own good works. That connection was, through a worldly reasoning process, you imagine yourself to be better than you are. You can tell yourself a convincing story. You know, I'm, I'm really not as bad as that guy. Uh, or if you just tell me what the goals are that I need to reach, I can work hard. I can get there. I can accomplish my salvation. And so worldly wisdom, worldly reasoning, thinking about yourself uh, in relation to God apart from Scripture, can lead you to depend on, uh, on, on good works. That's a, a theology uh, of glory. It's to imagine a more heavenly and sinless form of theology whoa, uh, than is actually possible. And that's what he saw in evidence in the theologians of Rome. Over against that, Luther developed his theology of the cross. The cross being a symbol not of glory or heavenly, glorified life, but of the here and now. Uh, a theology of, of pilgrims. Uh, in fact, some of us like to tease Dr. Horton. So if you look at the cover of his systematic theology, there's this hobbit-like creature <laughs> on the cover. Uh, the meaning being as a, as a man with a backpack and a staff, and he's sort of going down the side of a mountain or up the side of a mountain. That actually would be interesting to know. Is he going up or down the mountain? I don't recall. But it's this sort of pilgrim theology. It's, a, it's a, theolo- a theology for people who are on the way, have not yet arrived at glory. Uh, and, and so it evidences the kind of logic that's paradoxical that he found uh, in, in the scriptures, the kind of passages we've, we've just been talking about. A theology of the cross denies man's wisdom and man's dependence on good works, rejects the temptations, the lure of a theology of glory, and depends uh, wholly, wholly on Christ, the foolishness of the gospel, which it appears to be wisdom to the world, uh, uh, or sorry, appears to be foolish to the world, but is actually the, the wisdom of God uh, revealed in Christ. That's, that's the kind of uh, theology that he has in mind. So I'll give you a couple examples of his Uh, of some of his theses here from this 1518 Heidelberg Disputation. Thesis three, although the works of man may seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sin. The theory is, I mean, according to a theology of glory, he's saying looks can be deceiving. Your good works may seem fairly innocent, fairly good, but he says they're likely to be actually mortal mortal sins. The very next thesis, the works of God may seem unattractive, may seem like foolishness, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, etc. Uh, they are nevertheless eternal merits. That, that's, that's his theology of the cross. Um, he, he, he talked about uh, in, in the next set of, of theses, Christ's glory and humiliation. And, and talked about how you might, you expect the Son of God, the Messiah, 
to arrive in glory. But you find him on the cross. You find him in a state of humiliation, not in a state of exaltation. And, and that's mind-blowing to the theologians of glory. They can't understand it. They can't grasp it. Uh, but that's the theology uh, of the cross. So the question, to sort of bring this back to indulgences at the very end, which is what, which is what he finally does, he makes indulgences a gospel issue. And he poses a question for the church. Will you pursue a theology of glory in the church or a theology of the cross? Will you, will you lean on your own, uh, your own moral energy, your own willingness to tell yourself a story about you're not so bad, you can maybe do it. If it's just these commandments to work on, I can get there. Or will you cast yourself entirely on the mercy of, uh, of God and Christ? Will you pursue uh, a theology of the cross? Uh, that's what he poses in this, in this Heidelberg disputation. Now, there are other uh, paradoxes in Luther. Uh, just time for, for maybe one more quickly. Which is the theology uh, of, the, of law and gospel. L here will just symbolize gospel. Uh, sorry, law and G for gospel. And, and Luther says there's different ways of talking about the relationship between law and gospel. One way, probably not very clear, is the temptation to conflate or confuse law and gospel. What does law say? To back up just a step. Law says, do this and you shall live. It gives a command. In fact, that's how he summarizes it in one of his theses here. Um, he says, thesis 26, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. So law says, do this and live. Gospel is pure promise. It says, Christ has already done for you. And he says, one of the, at the heart of the Christian life is understanding the distinction between law and gospel. And there's sometimes paradoxical relationship. It's very important, according to Luther, to understand that it's a paradox. Uh, you have to hold the two law and gospel in tension. Christians need both. We need the law and we need the gospel. We need both. But one ought never confuse them, two arrows going towards each other. And certainly one ought never to separate them, two arrows going away from each other, rather to hold the two in tension. And paradox. We need the law and the gospel. The, the law drives us to Christ. It brings us up short. It defies the theology of glory. Is what the law does. When you really uh, encounter the law uh, preached to you, it defies and breaks apart and shatters the theology of glory. And so you need the law. But you have to have the, the hope and comfort of the gospel. You, you need the gospel uh, coming to you as well. After the gospel... The law resumes a place in your life. The law doesn't change, but your relationship to the law changes. And now the law no longer condemns you. The law shows you how to lead your life. So you need both law and gospel. You have to relate them to each other without confusing them, without separating them. You hold them in tension, in paradox. This is one of, law and gospel is one of Luther's favorite paradoxes. And it's sort of in the context of these more general theological categories uh, a theology of glory and, and a theology of the cross. 
So that's Luther's uh, Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, it, was, it, it is a classic in theological literature. Uh, I mean, it's a set of theses and proofs, so it's not necessarily the easiest to read, but it's a wonderful kind of introduction uh, to this par paradoxical way of doing theology uh, and recognizing something in the gospel kingdom logic that's at work. So what happens after the Heidelberg uh, Disputation? Uh, now we turn to Martin Bunser, which admittedly may be a little aside from, from Luther's life and bio, but I thought it would be useful to talk about because it's important to understand that it, from 1518 on, the Reformation is beginning like you know, ripples of water uh, to spread throughout Europe. It's no longer happening just in Wittenberg. This isn't just about Luther anymore. The Reformation is beginning to spread. And you can see that explicitly in the example of Martin Bunser. So who was Martin Bunser? He was uh, a young theologian. He'd become, he was born in Alsace-Lorraine, sort of on that border uh, between France and Germany. Sometimes it was part of France, sometimes it was part of Germany. It sort of moved back and forth historically. Uh, and in order to receive a good education, at age 15, he joined the Dominican Order, which was sort of like the, the, the educational wing uh, of the church at that time. Dominicans were, were uh, important educators. And he receives an education. Uh, he's transferred to the Dominican monastery in, in Heidelberg in 1516 and begins learning Greek so that he can read the Bible uh, uh, in the original languages uh, for, for the first time. And that's how he happens to be in Heidelberg when Luther comes to town, the, the traveling Luther show, uh, to talk about indulgences, they thought, but it turns out just to talk about the theology of the cross. And he's won over. He hears Luther, and at the end of the disputation, he vows he's going to leave uh, the Dominican order. Uh, the vow is taken. He doesn't act on it right away. Eventually, he winds up in Strasbourg. He's a parish priest as a Dominican for in a couple of different places and then winds up in Strasbourg. The story of Martin Bunser is the story of the Reformation in Strasbourg, which is an interesting one. Uh, it's very easy to ignore uh, and skip over uh, Martin Bunser, in part because, this might, this might sound kind of nasty, but he, he, was, he wrote like a bureaucrat. He, he was just wordy. Luther didn't care for Bunser uh, all that much. In fact, there's a story about uh, Luther hearing someone read a passage of theology at the dinner table. He, not knowing the author, he heard the passage and he said, it's so torturous and wordy and it just goes on and on. So I detect that babbler Bunzer. <laughs> so you can tell what Luther uh, thought about Martin Bunzer. Um, nonetheless, uh, uh, Bunzer is an incredible ambassador for the Reformation. He really is a bureaucrat to put it positively, he, he was probably the spokesperson for the Reformation because of where he was situated in Europe. Uh, we'll come to find out if we have enough time today. Luther, there was a arrest warrant out for Luther very shortly after the Heidelberg uh, disputation, within a few months. Uh, and he was being summoned to Rome, which was go, go to Rome and die, uh, was the call, and, and he didn't want to go to Rome. Uh, and he's in and out of hiding, using you know, aliases, etc. Uh, so it's not safe for Luther, is the point. 
Strasbourg is a city that's outside of the Holy Roman Empire. That's right on the western edge of the Holy Roman Empire. It's a free imperial city. So there's some measure of freedom there. And, and the Reformation gets going uh, because of a whole number of, of sort of forgotten reformers, most of whom I find pretty interesting. Uh, Matthew Zell, the uh, city priest in Strasbourg, from 1520 to 1522, begins preaching against the corruption of the clergy. Uh, especially because one of the priests at another cathedral in Strasbourg, St. Nicholas, is living with his concubine there in, 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 uh, in the church buildings. So 1521-22, he's preaching against uh, corruption of the clergy. And very shortly after he's joined uh, in 1521 by uh, Bunser himself and Wolfgang Capito. Uh, I wish there was more time to talk about Capito. That should be an I. Sorry. Uh, Capito was a, had a PhD in, in law and in theology. He was a disciple of the great humanist Erasmus. Uh, and, and so they're all there complaining about corruption uh, of the clergy and the church. But something very, very peculiar begins to happen. It's, it's one of my kind of favorite stories about how the Reformation emerges uh, in, in Zurich. They all get married. This is a peculiar sort of thing. Uh, they're all, they've all taken vows for, of clerical celibacy. They're all priests. And, and frankly, awkward with members of the opposite sex. And as far as we know, actually, Matthew Zell is about the only one who managed to organize his own marriage. They all organized each other's marriages. We're like, I'm afraid to talk to girls, but I can talk to that girl and maybe set them up with my friend. That's, that's basically what, what happened. So, uh, so Martin Bunzer is the first. Uh, a, a woman, uh, Elizabeth Silberreisen, is a nun, and she escapes. She flees the convent near Strasbourg and takes up refuge in Matthew Zell's house. And, and Bunzer says, well, I'll marry her. Uh, and so, and so Bunzer gets married to this Elizabeth uh, Silberreisen. And they have a, a happy marriage. She's an escaped nun. So this is, this is massively controversial in the church at the time. Uh, Matthew Zell, he, 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 he organized, uh, arranged his own, his own marriage uh, with a, an important uh, uh, merchant family in Strasbourg. In fact, they actually co-wrote a book together. Uh, defending the, uh, the honorability of, of the marriage of the clergy, and she wrote uh, good, good portions of it. Capito, he was sort of the awkward seminarian, which we, which we sometimes see. Uh, <laughs> Bunzer uh, had to arrange a marriage for him to uh, the widow of a reform, the reformer in Basel, Johannes Ecolampadius, a, a name that's difficult to say, Ecolampadius, uh, he was a reformer in, in Basel, and he'd been married. He died, and so Martin Bunzer said, well, I know a good man, Wolfgang, uh, and, and organized his marriage to, to Wolfgang uh, Capito. Uh, unfortunately, in 1541, the plague came to Strasbourg, and Capito died, and Martin Bunzer's wife died. So Martin Bunzer married his 
his, uh, his, she, this, this woman, uh, Wynne Brandis, we'll write her name down because she's an unsung hero of the Reformation for sure. Uh, Wynne Brandis Rosenblatt, that's why I remember the name because uh, it always makes me think of Rod Rosenblatt, which probably isn't fair to him. But <laughs> uh, in any case, so this woman was married to three successive Protestant reformers, uh, which, I mean, gives new meaning to the phrase that the woman was a saint. Uh, she, she really put up with a, a lot. Uh, when Brandis Rosenblatt, uh, an unsung hero of the Reformation. So, uh, by the way, the, the parish priest of St. Nicholas Church, who'd been living with his concubine, was convicted of his sin, became Protestant, and, and married the concubine. So, join the Reformation. That's four. There's two more. I won't go into the details. But long story short, by 1524, there are six married priests in Strasbourg. And the bishop has got to act. His hand is forced. He, he has to do something. So he calls them all to Episcopal court to try them for breaking their clerical vows. And, and here's, how, here, here's how the Reformation happens. The city magistrate protects the priests and won't let them go to the ecclesiastical court to be tried. And one of the things that's happening in the background in, in the 1520s is European law is changing. Before the Reformation, if you were a priest, you weren't subject to civil law, which something like that still goes on today in the Roman Catholic Church. If you're to, to convict criminally uh, a, a pedophile is almost impossible. The church protects their own. But at this time, it was completely impossible. I mean, imagine Reverend Brown driving 150 miles an hour down the freeway. The cop pulls him over. Well, I'm not subject to county law. I'm a, I'm a pastor in the URCNA. Uh, they discipline me for such things. Th this was the situation. Uh, it's kind of preposterous, and rightly so. And so the city council said, enough. Uh, they changed the law, and all of these married priests were protected. Within very short order, uh, the city magistrates then uh, unwound uh, Roman Catholic authority in the, in the parish and, and, and the city became, uh, became Protestant. So what, what's, the, what's the meaning or significance of this? What's, what's happening? Uh, what's interesting to me is there are general truths that the reformers discovered, but they're all worked out in, in practice in, in local contexts. So they're recovering the gospel and along with the gospel recovering their sense of Christian freedom and, and rejecting unbiblical forms of piety that are being forced on the life of the church. So in Wittenberg, what aspect of medieval piety did Luther react against? Indulgences. That was a, an important aspect of medieval piety, and Luther, Luther rejects it. Here, in Strasbourg, marriage, a sacrament, clerical celibacy, that's the aspect of medieval piety that the reformers reacted against in, in, in Strasbourg um, and helped bring about the Reformation there. Wittenberg and Strasbourg were, were the two big cities uh, of the Reformation. Uh, uh, 
I'll, I'll finish telling you about Bunser in a second here. The other, the other major city is not actually Geneva as of yet. Geneva comes around to the Reformation quite late. You know what the, the controversy was in Zurich that, that Zwingli reacted against? Mm, that became a big issue first, but the big, it's a great anniversary date. It's 9th of March, 1522. Uh, Lenten fasting. Zwingli shows up in Zurich in 1522 and is preaching against uh, abuses of the piety by the priests. And so, uh, specifically, the 40-day imposed fasting from meat before Easter, thinking that this is an unbiblical command that's being forced on the laity. And so, so he and his, this is a, a wonderful story, he and a, a, few, a few friends and a, and a wealthy businessman in the area in March, right before Easter, have a, a sausage cookout, basically. They, they literally have a, 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 a worst essen. Um, they barbecue sausages, probably drink some beer. That reminds me of Jerry Van Stills. I'm going to call you out that joke that you told me a couple weeks ago that's been stuck in my head ever since. You know the, uh, the thing about German sausage jokes? They're the worst. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> I kind of threw you under the bus there, but uh, that's what they do. They have this. Uh, they have this party, and they eat sausages in order to break the the Lenten obligations to exercise their Christian liberty. And the next year, uh, in 1523, there's a disputation in Zurich. Uh, Zwingli wins over the city magistrates, and they vote on the Reformation. The city council that we we want to go with the Protestants, and so. Uh, that's how the Reformation happened. So three examples of, uh, of medieval piety in different cities in the Reformation. They're all drawing from the same truths, recovering scripture, recovering the gospel, uh, but working it out in critique of these different aspects of, of medieval piety. Um, so what's interesting is they're all learning from each other as well, uh, especially from, from the violation of marriage. Within very short order, almost all the reformers uh, get married. Uh, Luther, in 1524, quite late actually, uh, gives up his uh, his monastic clothing. Now there's another really bad joke. He he broke a bad habit. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> there it is. I can't take it back now. Uh, <laughs> so he he gets rid of his monastic clothing, and the next year, 1525, he gets married to Katerina Vambora, another runaway uh, nun. About that time, uh, Martin Bunser, he's become good friends uh, with a churchman in England, Thomas Cranmer, who will become the Archbishop of Canterbury and reform the church in England. Uh, and they managed to sneak a German woman in a barrel into England so that she can marry uh, on, the, on the sly. Actually, she married Thomas Cranmer while he was visiting Europe. And then they brought her back in uh, to England in a barrel. Uh, he had to keep her secret at that point. She, again, with the patience uh, thing. Uh, anyways, I have no idea how much time we have left at this point, but uh, I'll just finish telling you the story about Bunster since we're talking about England. Uh, 1547 or 1548, uh, Strasbourg is under, under uh, threat from Rome. And so, so Martin Bunser has to flee Strasbourg 
and, and the city temporarily becomes Roman Catholic and then, and then Lutheran again. So where does, where does Bunzer go? He becomes the Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge University in England. I, we all think about Henry VIII and his wives and, and, and his daughters especially, uh, but he did have a young son, Edward VI, who was king for just a short while, who was sympathetic to Protestantism, and he invited Bunzer uh, to come to Cambridge and, and uh, be the professor of divinity there. And, and he wrote a systematic theology. I'm not making this up. 31 out of 62 chapters are on marriage. Uh, so this, this uh, experience and debate that he'd had stuck with him. Um, so he was there in England. Uh, unfortunately, he, he died. And it's one of the more bizarre stories of Reformation history. Uh, I suppose I have to tell it to you now. Um, well, he dies, and Edward VI dies a couple months later. And Bloody Mary comes to the throne, Roman Catholic. All of England veers back in the direction of allegiance to Rome. And one of the things that she did was exhume Martin Bunser's body, try him for heresy, and burn his remains at the stake. Kind of bizarre. Uh, I think what's even more bizarre is that after... Uh, Bloody Mary is gone. Elizabeth comes to the throne, restores the kingdom to Protestantism, and poor, poor Bunzer's body. Uh, at this point, it's hard to imagine what would have been left. This is like 10 years after he dies. It's exhumed again, allegedly, uh, and given a state funeral uh, and buried, uh, buried in, in Cambridge. So the lives of these reformers, uh, you know, af the afterlives were kind of interesting. Uh, this was not the only case of digging up bodies and trying them for heresy. Uh, our, our Italian reformer, Peter Martyr Vermeule, uh, he died in Oxford and was buried there. And, uh, and Bloody Mary had him dug up as well and burned. And Elizabeth did the same thing, restored his body, um, etc. I have no idea how to conclude uh, on such a story, so I'll just stop <laughs> and, and ask questions. Yeah. Uh, it means Roman Catholics believe in cremation. I, I, I don't know. I think that's probably true. I, I haven't given that a great deal of thought, but uh, it is safe to say there was, there was nothing was too far when it came to punishing heretics far as the church was concerned at the time. And so they went to sometimes great extremes uh, in order to carry out uh, their sense of, misguided as it was, some sort of, sort of justice. Um, it's, it's a bizarre story, though, admittedly. Yeah, what, did you follow up? Oh, our time is up. Um, okay, let me close the prayer, and, uh, and then I'll be up here afterwards if there are any more questions. Gracious Father, we, uh, we thank you that you startle and surprise us with uh, the logic of the gospel. Um, your, your wisdom is sometimes too much for us, uh, but by your Holy Spirit and by your word, uh, you guide us into this new way of thinking about ourselves in relation to you, and we uh, depend and lean wholly upon Christ. Uh, and we know that your, your strength is, uh, is, made uh, is, made, uh, is shown to be uh, a wonderful 
remarkable thing even, even in our weakness. Uh, be with us. Uh, empower us to go out in the gospel and, and love our neighbor. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.